Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm still mindful of Pastor Ian Hesketh's, Ian's passionately crafted message to us just four weeks ago. Everyone uh, might not have been here, but um, it was Mission Sunday whereby he gave us um, a portrait of the life of Christ as an insight into how the calling of the disciples of Jesus also impacts what it looks like for us, his present-day followers, to live this new way to be human. We heard how the, the heart of God, from the very beginning, before even the creation of the world, was always to bring to full fruition his perfect eternal plan of love for us. And how the crux um, of that plan became the man Jesus, who, being fully God and fully man, revealed not only to us who the Father is, but what it looks like for us to be fully human. As he works his purpose out through us in our daily lives and as we respond to his invitation to journey with him and become all that he designed us to be as I say, from the very beginning to his perfect fulfillment of that same eternal plan. We learned about not just responding to him as saviour, but the need to consider the cost of prioritising him as Lord. Because to call him Lord, if we're not to be, I suppose, hypocritical, effectively means the whole of our life, bringing the whole of our life under his leadership. And then it becomes not just about our activities, about what we do, but about who we are becoming. A gradual laying down of our priorities to his will in obedience to journeying together with him and what pleases him. In other words, our worship is great. We sing songs on Sunday and that's good, that's worship. Uh, but worship is also more than that. It's worship daily completed. Not only as we actively proclaim uh, that he's all that we need, but in the action of a daily, obedient laying down of our lives at his feet to doing his will. Yet, at the time... Um, when Ian explained this in his message, I just got a sense, very slight sense, almost of a, I suppose, a slight frisson of fear in the room. But I'm here to tell you today that there is no need to fear allowing Jesus in our lives as both Saviour and Lord. Because the will of God will never place you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Let me just repeat that so you've got it. The will of God will never place you where the grace of God cannot keep you. And that's the reason for one of the Proverbs, I think. It's in chapter 16 and verse 33. Perhaps we can get it up on the board. There it is. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. 
anything. We can get into various circumstances, things can happen, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And it's also why Jesus, the Son of God, gave us this model prayer. The one we know as our Lord's Prayer. And said to his disciples, when you pray, say this. Let's, we'll put the first, we've got the first part. Let's say it out together, this first part, if you will. Say with me, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. There we have it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if you'd like a handle for this morning's message, it's going to be called A Portrait of Christ on Earth as it is in heaven. And seeing that we've just prayed that our Lord's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I thought it might just help if we briefly look into the implication this morning of three words pertaining to this same will of God for us. And I, I suppose I'm doing a bit of a Pastor John here because each of the words begins with the same letter. So I've called it the three R's. And they are repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. And uh, talking about John, that gave me a reminder to quickly repeat what Pastor John seems to tell us is the only joke he's able to remember. And it's why are pirates called pirates? There's a clue on there, or there was a clue on the still there, clue on the screen. And he said, because they are. That's enough of that. Let's get serious again. Let's look first at the word repentance. For me, um, we're all different. We all come to the Lord in different ways. When I first came to the Lord, it seemed to be in quite a, an instantaneous way. As I, I was reading scripture one day and I found myself saying, oh no, I've been going the wrong way all these years. Jesus, he's the way. And then later, I read the scripture that said, repent and believe. And I thought, well, I've never done that. I must have got it wrong. So as a new believer, a few weeks later, I was really grateful to come across this tiny little book with just four chapters in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament called Jonah. And it was really as I read Jonah's life story Mm, I recognized a few of his negative character traits in myself and slowly started to figure out more of what repentance meant and what Jesus meant when he said, repent and believe. It seemed to be so that his direct lordship could apply to me. And I started to realize that when I read scripture, and it spoke to me in a way that was of God's asking, then I needed to obey. Otherwise, I'd been going, I'd be going nowhere but down. And Jonah certainly went down, didn't he? He took a three-day mini-break in Wales. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was hoping Welsh Mary would be here today. It was the book of Jonah those, in those days, though, that urged me to find a brief 
perhaps one sentence overview of some of the other books of the Bible and that it in that it was from the book of Jonah where my day-to-day -day understanding of see God's viewpoint and turn came from because that's what the re word repentance means see God's viewpoint and turn Jonah was already a man of God he was a prophet even we know that from uh, I think it's the second book of Kings chapter 14 verse 25 uh, which tells us All right, oh, that's better. Just got to be careful not to enjoy my trip now. Okay, where was I? Yeah, we were saying that uh, Jonah was a prophet, uh, and 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25 tells us of a prophecy that Jonah made at the time of the ascension uh, to the throne of a guy called King Jeroboam II, and that this king would restore the border of Israel, again to that of former times. Uh, and this prophecy was fulfilled. It was during the 41 years, uh, an evil reign of this same Jeroboam, a period of great material prosperity uh, for the nation, yet also uh, one of great spiritual corruption. And yet, when God told Jonah to go to this consistently wicked Gentile city of Nineveh and warn them that they're just 40 days left to repent or they'd be destroyed, he totally disobeyed. He even tried the possibility of running away from God by heading in the complete opposite direction to another Gentile city called Toshish. Assuming that his fleeing from God would release him from having to obey God. And, you know, this whole world of ours, held captive by deception, assumes the same thing. And in reality, cannot come to its senses unless and until it hears and responds to the gospel message of Jesus and is then transformed by his gift of repentance, because it's a gift. This turning to see the knowledge of the truth of his view into a right and vibrant relationship with God through his son. And you know, there were two reasons for Jonah's disobedience, even as a man of God. First, knowing that our God, who of course was his God, is a loving and a merciful God, it followed that Jonah knew that if he was successful in completing his mission from God, then these people of Nineveh would see God's viewpoint, turn from their own wicked ways to his ways, and God would forgive them. And Jonah didn't want them forgiven. He disagreed with God. He wanted them dead because of their wickedness. Second, <coughs> excuse me. Second, Jonah also knew of a time, it was previous to his own former prophecy to King Jeroboam, 
that God has al had also sent the prophet Amos up from Judah to Israel in the north to tell Israel that one day in the future, the same, uh, the same Assyrians of which Nineveh was capital would come to destroy them. So Jonah's thinking, well, 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 on that basis, why would I be obedient to wanting Nineveh saved now, only to be responsible for seeing them come down to destroy my country, Israel, in the future, my country. You see, Jonah was also a nationalist. Let's have a look at the last verse, verse 10 of chapter 3 now in the book of Jonah. And read through into the first three verses of chapter 4. There it is. And we read, it says, Then God saw their works, talking about Nineveh that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry so he prayed to the Lord was not this what I said when I was still in my country you're getting the nationalist bit here because that would mean Jonah himself had become the instrument of the Assyrians' repentance unto life, yet allowing them later to come and destroy Israel when they needed to repent. Therefore, he carries on, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. He's going down into depression again now, enabling the prophecy God had given to Amos to see the viewpoint of God, which would allow these present wicked Assyrians to be the future conquerors of my country. Fortunately, God would not cast aside his servant Jonah because of faithlessness, and he's exactly the same with us. He still responded to him in mercy. He kept after Jonah as long as it was necessary for him to see that his God remained always the same God of mercy and loving kindness, whether to Jews or to Gentiles. Although we aren't specifically told what happened at the end of, the, of Jonah's life story, the very fact that he actually penned the book of Jonah becomes sufficient evidence for us to realize that he both finally saw the full viewpoint of God's character and fully turned to the laying down of his own life to the reasonable service of doing God his Lord's will. We too, I know for myself, even after our conversion as believers can behave exactly the same as Jonah. We've got, I think, an unlimited capacity to believe that we know what is best for us, regardless of what God says. But for we who are followers of Jesus, God tells us that we are not our own. Jesus is Lord. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 next. There we have it. It's nine, verses 19 to 20, and it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God? And you're not your own, 
For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let's be aware that like Jonah, God keeps after us to deal with our disobedience just as long as it's necessary. Fortunately, he's a forgiving God and he's offers, he'll offer us a second, a third, a fourth, even a millionth of chances if necessary that he might indeed become Lord of our life as well as saviour of it. Okay, let's go on to the second of our three R's now, which is reconciliation. You know, those seven lovely people who, was it two weeks ago you were baptised? Yeah, two weeks ago, went under the waters of baptism, signifying the death of their old lives under that water, to then coming up into a new life, reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They weren't just doing that simply because they realized they'd now received salvation, but also because they were being obedient to a command to be baptized from Jesus because he'd now also become Lord of their lives. So let's look, uh, I think it's already up there, let's look at uh, what the Apostle Paul in the Bible tells us is called the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, it's in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 15 to 21. And Paul says, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, which is that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We, he says to the believers, speaking to non-believers, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the ministry of God's will through Christ, reconciling earth to heaven, made possible only through his death and resurrection on our behalf, and which has now become uh, through him, our ministry of reconciliation as his ambassadors, so that the furtherance of his will on earth as it is in heaven might continue until his return. Well, are we getting the message? Listen, listen to what Paul says. This time it's in Colossians chapter 1, 
and uh, there we have it in verse 24 I've taken the amplified version on this occasion he says even now I rejoice in the midst of my sufferings on your behalf and in my own person I'm making up whatever is still lacking and remains to be completed on our part on our part of Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church when I first read years ago that scripture I thought well I thought Christ did it all he did but there's still our part to be completed and why does the Apostle Paul tell us to complete our part which is still lacking and remains of the responsibility we have for Christ's afflictions well the explanation for us is exactly the same as the one he gave the first Jewish followers of Jesus about their responsibility. And uh, this time it's in his letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2. Again, this one's uh, in the Amplified Version. And he say, it's, uh, this is what it says. Looking away from all that will distract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of faith, the first incentive for our belief, and the one who brings our faith to maturity, who, for the joy of accomplishing the goal, set before him, endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, revealing his deity, his authority as our Lord, and the completion of his work. We are our Lord's ambassadors, that the will of the Father is done on earth as it is in heaven, to his purpose of reconciling the two kingdoms of heaven and earth. This is why the calling of the 12 disciples of Jesus also impacts how we get to live. Pastor Ian on Mission Sunday brought, uh, he brought up the mention of Psalm 67, but he didn't go into it. So I'd like briefly to look at the first three verses uh, of what Psalm 67 tells us. Verse 1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Why would he do that? Verse 2 answered it, answers it. That your ways, that's God's ways, may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. In other words, he's saying, look, we are blessed in order to pass on the blessing. Verse 3 says, may the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. And verse 3 in the Amplified Version adds, and turn away from their idols. What's that about? Well, the dictionary tells me that for me to be reconciled with someone means that I have to be made compatible with them to allow their views so I can coexist with them. So we're coming back to the same point that I can hardly call myself compatible, reconciled to Lord Jesus, if I still haven't aligned my views and actions to his, can I? 
Okay, time's getting on. So let's finish now by looking into the last of these three R words. We've had repentance, we've had reconciliation, and now we come to the final word in the trilogy, restoration. Again, looking in my dictionary, it tells me that restoration is about a bringing back to the original, or bringing back to the original state. I suppose in this sense we could also use the word renewed. And for us, the people who, let's face it, we take the Bible as the authority and the structure and the logic in our lives, surely that must take us back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, where we're told that God created man in his own perfect image and likeness, yet with the gift of free choice. And we've learned in past weeks that in this Portrait of Christ series, we've learned that from that free choice came a flawed decision on our part, caused by pride to follow our way against his. The willful act of disobedience, which our Bible calls sin, and which consequently separated us from a pure, holy, and perfect God, causing what became known as the fall of man. But we also know that fortunately God wasn't phased by this and in the fullness of time sent his only begotten son. The same one the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians this one time. It's chapter 1 verses 15 to 20 where he says he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. I believe what's, that's what the scientists, do they call it? The atomic or the invisible glue? We know who that glue is. The glue that holds the universe together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. People, this is the only one whereby people can be restored, renewed, made whole, made complete, if you like, to be who and what we should be. So Luke 10, sorry, Luke 19 and verse 10, talking about Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. It was funny because we're now going to talk about Zacchaeus again. John, unknown to me, had uh, done the same thing. Uh, he talked about Zacchaeus last week. Uh, so that scripture is in the context of Jesus calling down this little guy Zacchaeus from a sycamore tree and going to dine in his home. Um, because the norm of that day, because of the norm of that day, there was absolutely no way that this guy would ever 
have got anywhere near to any stage of repentance or reconciliation or restoration. You see, John talked about some of it. Uh, he wasn't just a tax collector, but the chief, not only other t over other tax collectors, but above the customs officers also. So a top guy who consequently had become massively rich due to the extortion possibilities that this highest of positions offered. You know, when John talked about him and we saw him up the tree there, I should think he nearly fell off the tree because he'd be so delighted to know that another Jew, especially this one called Jesus, was actually coming into his house because Zacchaeus would have been an absolute pariah to every other Jew apart from tax collectors. He'd have had no visits whatsoever, no social life apart from prostitutes and perhaps the odd visit um, one or two other tax collectors. He'd have been shunned, I suppose, as a real Billy no-mate. And because of the Pharisaic religiosity of the time, Jesus, I'm sure, would have made loads of enemies that day. Is there a major lesson for church as well here, portrayed by this love, acceptance, and forgiveness that Jesus portrayed? And as John also mentioned last week, this guy, Zacchaeus, I'm reminded as against the rich young ruler who came to talk to Jesus, this guy proved his salvation by his works. He gave half of his goods away and was willing to give back fourfold um, on everything he'd robbed, showing his, his absolute thankfulness uh, for the grace of this Jesus who'd become his newfound saviour and Lord. And as we learned, the requirements of both the Mosaic and the Pharisaic law of the day was to give only 20% by, obviously 20 on give the, what you owed and plus 20%. But because of his newfound personal faith, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. You see, he no longer conformed to the pattern of the world. He'd been transformed by the renewing, if you like, the restoration of his mind, now able to test and approve what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will was. That's from Romans 12.2. And like Paul also tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.16, however old we are, this certainly applies to me, although outwardly we might be perishing, inwardly, thank God, I praise you, Lord, we're being renewed, we're being restored day by day. So coming back to the lordship of Jesus in our lives, in a sense, it's really a no-brainer, no worries, because as we journey together with him, uh, Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says, it's Jesus who is the author and perfecter of faith. The first incentive for our belief and the one who brings our faith to maturity. And finally, that our now might be impacted by the not yet, which is to come, brings to my mind another guy, the Prophet Joel's little book, and his talk about little else but the future turning from desolation 
to restoration, not only of the whole nation, of this same little guy Zacchaeus, but to the worldwide reign of King Jesus. Okay, final scripture, and we're done. Second Peter, second letter of Peter, chapter 3, verse 13, says, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. What's not to like? Okay. I'll pray quickly now and then uh, I think we've got a, a song coming up. Let's pray. Father, I'm realizing that the, the most important thing in life is to know you better. Jesus, oh, thank you. You're the express image of the Father. From this day, Lord, help each of us determine to make you our primary focus and give us the grace and the strength to maintain that focus through all the vicissitudes and uncertainties of the days ahead. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Church, we're going to come and we're going to take communion together. A moment where we're reminded of the reconciliation, the restoration, the redemption. A moment for those that believe where we're reminded that on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Do you know what it is in heaven right now? It's looking like you, hidden with Christ. Christ is sat at the right hand of the Father. And you're hidden in him. That's reconciliation. That the one relationship that humanity longs for and doesn't even know it is restored in Christ. And so I want to encourage you as we sing just to come forward in your own time, just to come forward and take communion. And you may have found yourself hidden in that belly of a whale. God's calling you out. He's calling you out and say, come back. Just come back. Just come back. I, I long to be with you. Father, we thank you that we can experience a completely new way to be human because of who you are and what you've done. That we can know what the Father looks like because you have come as the visible revealing the invisible. And so in this moment right now, we gather around the communion table for those that love Jesus this morning.
Maybe you need to come back to him right now. I'd encourage you in this moment, just pray. Jesus, I belong to you. There's probably loads more else that needs to be said, but right now that is the most important thing. Jesus, I belong to you. And all that he has done for you. As, as David read in 2 Corinthians 5.12, that he who knew no sin became sin so you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That becomes your story. Because you said, Jesus, I belong to you.